0: If you're about protecting kids, which is what all of these conservatives say they're doing, (laughs) then like you would actually think about it this way. Because I don't know if the New York Times is thinking about like what a 16 year old who's Googling what to do if you're a trans kid with an unsupportive parent and then comes across an article like that. Like, are they not thinking about what that person's experience is like reading that article? Because if you're not doing that, who are you showing up for? Whose rights are being protected by that being the way your coverage approaches it?
1: Welcome to The Death Panel. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today, it's myself and my co-host, Jules Gil-Peterson. Hello. And Jules and I are joined by a wonderful guest today, Lexi McMenamin. Lexi is here to talk about the broader political economy and all too tangible material stakes of this year's already out of control anti-trans legislative agenda. Lexi is a writer and the news and politics editor of Teen Vogue. They have done extensive work in the last few years covering politics, culture, and specifically the way that both the mainstream conservative right and liberal Democrats are both afraid of and failing young people. So with all that said, Lexi, welcome to the Deaf
0: Panel. It's so great to have you on the show. Yes, as a as a Patreon subscriber, Aww. it's an honor to be here. And yeah, I'm excited to have a good fun good faith conversation a thing I never get to do it feels like
1: (laughs) oh
2: my god that's very real
1: yes and it's kind of depressing how often we hear that from folks they're like oh thank god I can speak my mind on that panel
0: (laughs) yeah and be taken seriously what a concept yeah
1: So this episode, you know, all joking aside, in many ways, this is a pretty grim anniversary. Uh, 2023 marks the fourth consecutive spring in our ongoing coverage of record breaking years for new anti-trans legislation in the United States. So every year now at the start of the legislative calendar in the United States, which is always in the spring, we've seen exponential increases in both the scope and the volume of these eliminationist policy frameworks. So this year so far, 494 bills, 494 bills have been introduced in 47 states. And so far, as of the time of this recording, 39 of those have passed. And just to mention. That, that is as of the day of recording, which is April 12th. We have 494. And I bring that up because when I pulled the number just two days ago on April 10th, there were 492 bills and only 36 had passed. So that's two more bills and three that passed in the last two days alone. <laughs> so again, 494 so far this year, subject to still increase. It's only April. And just to demonstrate the kind of increase in scale over the last few years in 2022 there were 315 bills in 2021 there were 150 bills in 2020 there were 89 bills and in 2029 there were 54 bills and in 2018 you know in tw- spring 2018 death panel didn't exist but they're around 40 then it's it's staggering to lay it out just over the last five years you know undeniably this is accelerating setting a pace that really places a kind of counterinsurgent style strain on the activists and movements that are responding to these mm-hmm. bills, you know, the antagonism, the hate, it's palpable, it's overwhelming. But what I think is really clear to me after four years of covering this on Death Panel and the way that we have is that, you know, the people really invested in this anti-trans eugenic project are so terribly afraid of young people and so desperate to control the boundaries of identity in accordance with that fear. You know, it actually reminds me of that Ruth Wilson Gilmore quote that I couldn't stop thinking about last year. I think I even brought it up in the first conversation that we had for the interview that I did with you, Jules, for the new inquiry. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't remember where it is or what was the context, but it's something like, quote, the state is rightly afraid of the kids that it has abandoned which is to say most of them. And I think, Julie, okay. you know, you've responded with something like, oh, yeah, you know, power is very anxious all of the time. They know how weak their positions are. So before we jump into any of the details of the bullshit that has happened in the last week, in the last month, this year so far, I just wanted to pause for a moment so we could start by sort of taking stock of of the big picture. You know, I'm curious to hear where both of you are at, what both of you think about what it means to be where we're currently at.
0: Yeah, uh, my chest hurts, you know, Um, like just hearing all of it. i had sorry. No, don't you. (laughs) You're not the one that needs to be sorry. Um, Like somebody, (laughs) like many people need to be. It's not you though. Um, (laughs) It's funny because I, you know, Trans Day Visibility was the 31st of March, which was 12 days ago. And the day that that went live, 487 Bills had been so. That does that mean like twelve bills since twelve days? That's one bill a day since that story was published. Mm. If my math is right, mm-hmm. one way that I think about this is like the way I divvy up my work day. You know, I'm the only news slash politics writer, like politics news writer for Teen Vogue, um, and I try and write two to three stories a week, and so that means at least one of my stories this year. Like, every week has to be about mm. transphobia by requirement of how this is all going. Obviously, I'm glad to be a trans person covering my community and the communities that are interlocked with mine. I'm really grateful for that. But at the same time, it feels like, an you know, it's an Ouroboros or how you pronounce it. Like, I
3: mm-hmm.
0: cannot help but feel my own complicity in the fervor because I have no choice but to keep reporting on how horrible it was. And mm. I think mm-hmm. how... I mean, it it just is like a unfortunate dynamic because obviously I'm you know maybe it's not obvious I am I work at Teen Vogue but I'm an adult you know I'm I'm in my twenties <laughs> but I I'm surrounded by young people whether that's my my sources my siblings their friends you know people in my community's kids and Jules I think you've spoken and written at length about the sort of political image the significance of the political image and like concept of the child, right. And how that has so much more to do with these political moves than the actual like material reality of being a young person and like how those two things are completely divorced from one another. I think it's, it's, it sucks to constantly have to be like, no one's thinking about the kids because you know, it's a, it's a moral appeal that doesn't work. But I think there's, there's no denying the psychic toll it's taking on me for instance and most of the people i know who are either you know trans or know another trans person because despite what the new york times might think it's not this you know whatever they think is going on it is simply people being people (laughs) in community with other people and i i just i know it sounds so abundantly obvious but i don't know how other people are not just constantly like you know disgusted with themselves and everything going mm-hmm. on given mm-hmm. all of this i don't know i guess that wasn't the most thoughtful um <laughs> critique no, no, of no. the legislative specifics but i do feel like that yeah, we'll is how i'm feeling right now yeah like it's just
3: mm.
1: It speaks to some of the kind of effect of the pacing, right? Because of the concentration, mm-hmm. because of the increase, because of the, um, frankly, lack of interest in covering this the way that even you've been covering it, Lexi. I mean, to make a commitment of like, I'm, I'm, making sure that this is something that's going to be ongoing in the politics and culture coverage for Teen Vogue, that's a commitment that, like, most publications have not even come close to making, right? But, like, even, you know, between the kind of concentration of, you know, the demands on a small community of people with, like, narrow access to power, this is really, like, between the kind of pressure in terms of responding to this legislation, which, again, a lot of it is, like, also specifically... Targeting children as a pathway towards also eventually targeting adults. Um, You know, this is, I think, a a moment where like a lot is happening where kids are being talked about and not to, even though they're actually materially at the center of so much of this debate. Mm
0: -hmm. And often trying to enter the rooms. Do you know what I mean? Like, not only are they not being spoken to or heard from it's not for lack of trying and not because they're not you know the Mm -hmm. people who are you know i mean we look at everything that just happened in tennessee last week with the expulsion of justin jones and justin pearson who um as we're speaking today on the day that pearson may be Re-elected by the Memphis Board of Commissioners, and on Monday, um, Justin Jones was reinstated. Regardless, point being that the people that were banging down the doors of the Statehouse to get in were, you know, largely high schoolers and middle schoolers who walked out of school to go demand that the legislators who weeks prior to the Covenant shooting had... Stood up against Tennessee's drag ban, for instance, and Gen- Tennessee's like anti-trans healthcare bans um, to get into the Statehouse to have these conversations. So it's mm-hmm. not like it, it, like the the constant objectivity of children, or like the objectification of children in mm-hmm. how the media talks about all of these legislative bills um, is like an intentional obfuscation. You know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm, a it's yes. a misrepresentation of the terms of politics right now and who is actively attempting to become an actor on that field and so i don't know like to not report that would be you know not quote unquote doing the news right like like i'd be lying to you if i didn't say Uh that like but lots of outlets i guess are doing
2: that now i mean as macabre as it is to check in year four right yeah I guess the way I I would sort of come to check in, you know, where we are today, I kind of want to register. I mean, I I feel a degree of ambivalence and I want to make a case for like holding on to some contradictions that I think having a conversation about young people will really help us dig into in a way that isn't just depressing or make us feel like we're on a train, you know, running downhill Mm -hmm. and and that we're stuck at the realm of fate, because I don't think we're stuck in the realm of fate at all. And like, I feel a lot of ambivalence because, you know, I think back a lot to sort of the kind of reflection a lot of trans people were doing in that kind of 2014 Time Magazine trans tipping point moment when... Black and brown trans women in particular were sort of leading a critical uh reflection on, on the real futility of a politics based in visibility and the kind of cultural fetish of visibility in America. And basically, you know, it was around 2014, 2015, even before North Carolina lobbed that first bathroom bill at us, you know, where I think the kind of political critique elaborated by Particularly trans women of color, the one that has remained most useful and actually hasn't really changed where we basically kind of foresaw all of this coming, you know, in one way or another. The baseline logic of it, this kind of anti-trans political apparatus that, you know, has a number of overlapping and sometimes not even convergent agendas for which it employs anti-trans political violence rather than some sort of unique hatred for trans people. Like some people might uniquely hate trans people, but I think there are just like so many causes and reasons that we're living out the particular version of escalation that we're living out right now. But I, I think back to that moment, And, you know, I think one of the things I've been trying to think about just in the past, yeah, in this spring over this legislative session, is I found myself now for like the third or fourth time spending a lot of time giving interviews and trying to to do public writing and public speaking. And and I've been thinking about how much, like, you know, for me, my politics precede my, my gender identity. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, my politics, I remember, you know, I was sort of raised, you know, in this kind of left environment where, like, my relationship to mainstream politics was always political depression, which is to say, like, oh, my kind of politics you know, are too left-wing to kind of show up in an electoral kind of spectrum. And so I I never expected to have to be a part of these kinds of rotten institutions that I don't really like, frankly, believe in, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, one of the things that I just want to name as particularly bizarro about, like, the world now is that, like, I find myself spending all this time commenting on legislation and, like, democratic politician strategy. Like, I don't care about those things, like, as yeah. fundamental goods. I don't, like, mm-hmm. have a strong investment in those institutions. And I think for, for those of us who have a critical materialist approach, right, part of the ambivalence of this moment How it registers for us is that, like, liberal trans inclusion, right, that kind of, like, state-based version, the supposed alternative to this anti-trans authoritarian or fascist project, liberal trans inclusion is the kissing cousin of fascism. They love each other. They're related. They are deeply in the embrace of one another. And I think of them as sort of complementary... In the sense that their ostensible antagonism—and this is a very death panel kind of you know line—but their their antagonism like supports one another. We're just mm-hmm. adjusting a modality where some trans people are targeted to be killed in spectacular yeah. modes, but that's actually about legitimizing and entrenching and intensifying a larger kind of calculus where other groups of trans people are meant to be left to die over slower time Mm -hmm. periods in less spectacular ways and so like you know part of the ambivalence is like well I don't like anti-trans fascism obviously um and I don't like all the things that it's propping up but I also don't believe in the liberal trans inclusion model that's been offered you know in the mainstream as its alternative and so just like experientially that registers for me every time I'm like talking to a reporter and I'm like well do you really want to Like, you know, I'm like, I'm actually not like looking for a policy solution here. The whole point is like the category of policy solution is what enables like Mm -hmm. genocidal campaigns against any group of uh, any minority group in the first place. But 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 so that's sort of like the way it registers experientially. But there actually is. We could think of the relationship between like, you know, the liberal project of making trans people useful to the state, making them useful to consumer culture, making them useful to political economy and the anti-trans eradicatory version. Um, You know, think of them as also like complementary, contradictory sort of partners in a kind of tango or choreography. Um, But then I think that that helps us like sort of relieve ourselves of the burden of having to like somehow you know, find... Uh, a position or a kind a speaking position, a subject position or an ethical position that somehow clarifies all of this and solves all of these problems or we just have to find that one weird trick, right? Where mm-hmm. we're gonna solve all of these problems and <laughs>
1: If we could just <laughs> find the right perfect rhetorical frame we would win the debate and I mean, everything would be fine. That, we'll but that's, that's
2: literally like that's the mainstream position, right? It's like mm-hmm. you, you gotta argue with like Matt Walsh on Twitter because one day you'll Prove him wrong or embarrass him. Oh my and it's God. like, he's Life not embarrassed. So short,
0: Life is so short. Life like, is it so may short. be so long, work. but it's so short, you know? Um, yes. I mean, I also have to reuse a joke that was in and of itself a reuse of a joke. Jules, I think in like an earlier episode of Death Panel, you had quoted a tweet, and God, I hope it was me because I'm always saying this uh, <laughs> that thank God we don't live in the Aaron working universe of politics. Yes. Everyone, relax, okay? Yes. Yes. None of us are. Bradley Whitford running around trying to impress people, and thank God, shout out to that guy. Um, But, like, I mean, I'm going to try and, like, keep this relatively brief, famous last words I know, just because I don't know that it has that much to do with, like, what we're talking about today, but kind of to, like, the general, you know, the tension between trying to not fall into liberal representation politics or, you know, not that I think any of us are at risk of this, the right-wing eradication strategy. I'd like to firstly say that I am grateful to be one of multiple trans reporters who have staff jobs. I want to shout out James Factora and Mm -hmm. Kispe Lopez at them, who are two of my great friends, um, Orion Rumler at the 19th. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is a pretty short list like I feel like I know most of us which is a little cringe and then obviously you have freelancers like Caitlin Burns etc but it does present an interesting almost like conflict of interest trying to navigate Mm -hmm. this so for example you know Teen Vogue every year does a new Hollywood package. I used to get it and I used to be a Teen Vogue subscriber uh, famously in my preteen years. And I would look at it every year. And, you know, Andrew Garfield's been in it and Emma Stone and whatever. And so this year I wrote one of the new Hollywood profiles and it was of Yasmin Finney, who Mm -hmm. is a actress on the Netflix TV show Heartstopper. Um, She is a young black trans woman. And, you know, it was, it was very odd or uncanny to be writing a cover star interview, big profile. Like I was there at the photo shoot. It was really amazing. It was really cool. Like it was her first time coming to the US. She's British. And we spent half the interview talking about her being afraid of going through TSA, like, and like yeah. going through customs when she got here. Do you know what I mean? Like the whole mm-hmm. conversation was about the airport. This is like a co- a cover story interview with someone who I watched do a photo shoot. And the entire conversation we had for mm-hmm. this woman who is now like a face of Tiffany, like from a couple weeks after that cover came out, uh, was about getting through the airport. Like it's about public space. It's about like yeah. the most basic fundamental things of being a person. And so it was enjoyable to be a trans person writing in this moment a cover story that was like, yeah, that's how fundamentally misrepresented all of this discourse is, is that you're you're not even able to access the basic humanity of the people mm-hmm. you're trying to turn into political footballs. But at the same time, like, am I part of the, you know, am I part of the problem? Because this not even cis people's business. All of these questions are, you know, constantly in a fervor in my mind. But I, I have to think that there's like some ground some unseated or as yet unseen ground for trans people to be writing and talking in this time whether or not it has to be in mainstream publications such as my own which I'm very happy to work at. I'm happy to be teen comrade teen vogue uh, but <laughs> I you know it it it's hard and but we're here like we're already here do you know what I mean we're already yes. here there's we're not I think there's no point at which the next step is going back in the closet as like a positive. And so how do we talk about ourselves and continue to talk about ourselves in a way that is generative and, you know, validating, Mm -hmm. but not in like a cheap liberal way, but in like Mm a, yes, we exist already. And there are ways to continue being in conversation with each other, even as people attempt to invisibilize us as a community. That, you know, to your point, Jules, like black feminists over the last however many decades have very clearly delineated for us trans women of color writ large. Like there are many guide paths to look to for how to do things differently, whether or not we can see them. Right. And that is no reason to stop trying to like gently nudge them into interview even if it has to be in the context to your point of stuff mm. we don't necessarily care that much about you know like i mean i'm a politics reporter but i care about politics as like lowercase p like i mm-hmm. I, I think right. it's about like politics is about people it's fundamentally about how we struggle together and like i it's not about i don't care so much about the next capital D democrat solution but like i care so far as it's going to change kids lives and they are like a lot of these are so
2: yeah I, I I think, though, this is, this is what I'm really kind of excited to dig into, though, because I think there's a way to cut through that kind of entrenched, exhausted inertia or the places we've all settled to kind of cope and keep up with the pacing, to keep up with the sheer number of political attacks. Um, right. But I think if we, if we, if, and I'm so eager to talk to you about this, Lexi, I'm um, like, Thinking about young people in particular, right? Because, right. Uh, you know, you were just saying, right, there are no shortage of ways to think about how to do things differently. I-, I actually think one of the interesting opportunities we have in reflecting on young people as political actors is to is to contemplate the idea that things actually may already be unfolding differently, but they're mm-hmm. not being recognized Uh, In any formal sense, right? And so you've already brought up a couple of great examples, the role of young people in Tennessee over these past couple of weeks, like who was, you know, taking up the space in the in the Capitol State Capitol building, who was leading these kinds of protests, right? We've seen this, you know, time and time again, that when young people actually engage in in movement work and organize and become political actors, that they're often very uh, carefully actually scrubbed out of the official narrative, right? So it's Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. you know, Black Lives Matter as like a youth-led movement or Stop Cop City in Atlanta – um, and, and, it, and it strikes me that in so many of these cases, right, what it means to be a political football in part is that uh, young people's demonstrable political actions are literally symbolically neutralized by Mm -hmm. adults, right? So that we're watching young people do things that are political. And then we reframe that um, so that they're no longer a part of the conversation. So all these things about trans youth are done in their name, but no one ever asks trans youth what they think. No one ever recognizes that trans youth are political actors because it serves the interests uh, of everyone involved for this to be an adult's game. I think that's true of almost every issue affecting young people. I'm thinking of like, all the discourse around school closure, and you know, mm-hmm. like all these things, like, but no one ever cares what the kids want to say, because it's actually, we don't want them to assert themselves as political actors. And and that's part of what's so interesting about children as political actors is that it's not just that they don't have the right to vote and they don't have political representation in the conventional sense. It's actually, I think that culturally, symbolically, their actions are depoliticized because, you mm-hmm. know, depoliticizing children facilitates all sorts of, you know, structures of domination and power imbalances. I was just, um, I couldn't help but thinking, you know, of, of this essay that, I, you know, I had Way back in 2016, I I was editing for for a special issue of a journal in queer studies um, by a wonderful scholar named Paul Amar, who is you know who did this ethnography in Egypt of um, of youth rebellion movements uh, that were sort of being targeted by you know by the Egyptian state security forces, and really you know Amar just sort of dug into all the ways that like when children are actively doing politics, how much work. Adults take to disqualify that Mm -hmm. as, as in fact, not political to call it adolescent rebellion or to call it chaos or, you know, to to make it to infantilize, right? Young people. Yeah, mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And and I was just thinking, right, like, you know, it just, it strikes me that one of the interesting doors that we've been forced to walk through, but that we've walked through nonetheless, we've already crossed this threshold where trans people are now everyone's business. That's the problem, right? Like that's why c- crossing the border, going through the airport is so stressful mm-hmm. um, because you're just suddenly everyone's business, whether you want to be or not. But okay, we've crossed that threshold. Here we are on the other side you know, I'm not very partial to this kind of snarky, like the average median voter in the suburb doesn't like, you know, um, the sex-obsessed, genital-obsessed right-wing crusade, so you know, that that white woman suburban voter is going to save us, like she Mm. supposedly did during the midterm elections. I have no idea what these people are talking about.
0: Be so for real right now. Like, literally have you spoken to another person outdoors? Like, try (laughs) going to Penn Station. There's (laughs) these things here called trains. You can get on them next to a commuter and then just talk instead of being like, here. like, sorry, like, it's actually like there are people I, mm, you know what, I'm gonna just stop, go back to what you were saying. No, just, no, 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 but, but this is exactly the,
2: the contrast, right? It's like, who cares about this fantasy median voter? Maybe it's true that as the mass public, you know, confronts the scale of what's going on right now, they'll be put off by it. But I don't have much hope. Like, why do we How have why have we not restored the right to abortion yet? Like, same question. But, but, but young people seem to be on the move and doing things, right? Like, you know, and some of that shows up in voting, but I think a lot of that shows up in organizing, shows up in attitude. And I think there is this kind of growing alarm that we're only getting the most oblique picture of when I see sort of, Thought pieces that are like Republicans are alarmed that they've lost Gen Z permanently and are in big trouble, you know, but I'm like, Mm. okay, that's the most like narrow version. Like what's actually going on and thinking of young people as political actors, including young trans people as political Mm -hmm. actors, not just as passive victims, right? Like the story we get in the media is basically like these poor kids had these things done to them and now their parents have to decide if they're going to move to a new state. And I'm like, Oh, I'm sorry. Do these kids, are they just like dolls sitting inside a box in their bedroom? They have no thoughts or feelings. They don't make plans for their own lives. They're not participating in decision-making. They're not mm-hmm. thinking about their own lives. They're not organizing. They don't talk to Passive their peers.
1: objects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like,
2: come on. So, so I think there is a sort of interesting opportunity here to really think about yeah if young people are such a disenfranchised class right now generationally right like and have the least patience because they see the writing on the wall about the crises in capitalism they see the writing on the wall about the active destruction of democracy they see the writing on the wall of rising authoritarianism and fascism and they see the writing on the wall about the impacts of climate change then like yeah maybe they're actually up to a lot of stuff. And it's the rest of the adult world that is anxiously burying our heads in the sand to our own immiseration. Like I want to be in solidarity with that version of politics, the kind of politics that gets disqualified and infantilized as not counting in the first place. What's that story of trans youth going on right now? Because I think that there are many of those kinds of stories that you might encounter just from knowing people, but like people have been so afraid to learn anything from how pissed off young people are. And I'm like, hello, maybe there's really good reason to dive into that. So I don't know, That that's something that actually is, I'm really genuinely excited like to Bro. contemplate. And I think that's an affordance <laughs> of this otherwise really shitty moment we live in.
1: I mean first of all I just really appreciate bringing up the role also of like returning to the the average voter as this yeah. constituency of like total moral it's it's the pinnacle right like if the average middle-class white woman doesn't approve of this, then, like, that is some sort of gold-standard fucking bar of, like... It's also
0: a myth. Like, there is no average middle-class white woman. Like, it's a lie of whiteness to even, Mm -hmm. like, construct these... Well, and then also, it
1: just reminds me, I have, like, the most vivid echoes of this part in Liat Ben-Moshe's book, Decarcerating Disability, where she talks about... During the moments when deinstitutionalization was happening for people with uh, labeled with intellectual or developmental disabilities, or IDD, um, the sort of last people who were freed from a lot of these large-scale facilities, part of what was happening was they were building group homes in the community and sort of breaking up these big facilities into smaller facilities of you know, maybe 10 to 12 people. And one of the things that sort of was a problem is that, like, when deinstitutionalization first got going, they had this requirement where, like, these facilities would have to notify the community, like, hey, there are going to be some disabled people moving in and they're going to be your neighbors. And people responded by... Lighting these places on fire by bombing them. I mean, the stories in Liat's book are jaw-dropping. Like, lighting a a group home with tens of people in it on fire in the middle of the night and all those people are disabled because you don't want your fucking property value to go down and you think... Having disabled people visible in your neighborhood is going to affect the property values. And even when they realize like, oh, shit, actually asking the kind of average ordinary citizen, are you okay with this, seems to engender a a response and give them an opportunity to think about it for a second and make a decision that's really fucked up and bigoted and hateful and very poorly informed that then becomes this kind of standard common sense opinion, right? And and I I Liat also talks a lot about Sarah Ahmed's work here and talks about what kind of like that consensus actually functions as. Um and and the idea of like how to kind of police boundaries and create a kind of solidarity by defining who the ordinary citizen is and making that sort of group under threat, right? And and sort of centralizing that opinion and that that framework, right? Within the kind of idea of like, this is the ordinary average citizen who just has some questions about trans people. This is the ordinary average citizen who's just concerned that disabled
0: people might ruin their property. You know, unlike and, trans people who are like children, both categories of whom cannot be trusted to make a decision on behalf of themselves. themselves. Okay. Unlike this hypothetical white woman voter or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm. And this is a really powerful. Kind of political force, the idea of communities of like minded people who are sort of coming together in consensus is this political sort of fantasy and desire that I think people pretend is up there on the horizon. It's, it's part of the myth of like coming together across the aisle and finding a third way. You know, it's respectability politics on fucking steroids. It's this kind of idea of like, appealing to common sense being the only pathway towards any kind of freedom from harassment <laughs> in any kind of sense or any kind of like freedom from a, a kind of eugenic control is about sort of recognizing that you might yourself be like disrupting that ordinary citizen's peaceful, happy view of the world and life. Like this is really kind of a, a powerful frame in, in both making people feel like they exist outside a boundary of society and that society is not for them. And this happens Mm -hmm. in so many ways, also in terms of how Medicaid works and thinking of the work of Jamila Mitchner, you know, how Medicaid makes people feel, quote unquote, disenfranchised from the state, you know, and it's not that like we care that people feel enfranchised from the state. It's just a point to like the fact that these things have effects when they are out materially in the world. This, you know, exponential avalanche of fucking anti-trans bills that like goes from 50 to fucking 500 in five years like the point is to create the uh fantasy of the destiny of trans people being wiped out by their policy agenda and try and assert that as the way the world is in a kind of way of manifesting and that's really what we're up against and so that's why it's so important to like not play by those terms and engage in refusal here i think
0: is your you're both saying mm. sorry to Oof, not a rant not a rant i was really apologized. excited to hear your thoughts yeah. and i felt like i had been mon- monopolizing or something so oh my God, good to all. know where you're at i well you say that now but i'm about to so <laughs> <Go> <laughs> first slay first it. slay of the episode um yeah i guess i kind of want to talk about like a, an example of the thing we're talking about the rejection of action or statements being put forth politically by young people Mm -hmm. as, like, even existing or, like, being worthy of coverage. You know, Vicky Osterweil was on the pod very recently and was talking about, kind of thinking about how climate is a great example of Mm -hmm. this. Like, the constant forcing of the possibility that climate change isn't real is, like, in and of itself a way of trying to downplay emotional legitimacy or like or like the legitimacy of critique from young people. Just looking at the whole Willow Project thing that just happened Mm. over the last couple of months under the Biden administration, basically, you know, TLDR, there was a planned oil rig in Alaska that had come into existence, had been bandied back and forth. Under Trump, and then you know Biden comes into office and says no, no new oil rigs. We're 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 against this. Blah blah blah. Go Dems. Um, he this year backtracked on that plan. Um, the way that a lot, uh, and then there was a very intensive outcry on social media from young people. And we can we can talk about like the pros and cons of, quote, unquote, social media activism, you know, (laughs) as the day is long. Um, So I'm not trying to make any sort of point or conjecture about that in general. But what it was, was, you know, literally millions looking at the numbers of young people going like, wow, am I organized? It's 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 mass scale organized abandonment. And they may not have that term and they're not you know reading Ruthie necessarily but they know what it is and they're calling it that like on the same social media accounts they used to post their dogs you know what I mean like this is part of their day-to-day life is being forced to be like wow I am sensing my own existential death and Mm. instead of doing anything about that they just proceeded with approving the plan and I know that we you know the people that listen to this podcast are not surprised by that news but I think the way that mainstream media covered it was very like ooh, social media style piece. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was like, uh, the kids are talking. Right. Here's what they're saying. They're stressed. TikTok algorithm. The end. <sighs> and, like, not actually treating it as what it was. It was like a mass outcry from an entire generation about not wanting to burn to death. And that was treated by the Biden administration as part of their general rightward turn that they're going through right now, right? Which you can consider the Title IX policy mm-hmm. release last week as part Which of that of course, to talk about too yeah totally um but you know like as part of this general rightward push biden has no problem completely shunting young people to the side and i wouldn't say that there's a very strong popularity around electoralism amidst gen z right like i think we can be very critical of a lot of data but just among like the stuff that team Vogue has run we've done our own polling it doesn't really feel like People are that bought in on electoralism as a strategy, but with the very few who might have felt galvanized by a Biden win in 2020 after the Trump administration as their perhaps first presidency, they could remember, right? Like, it's it's making a very clear narrative that I don't feel like most outlets are reporting where it's just like, hey, the fascism is here, Biden's also here, you know, marching alongside it, and people don't like it and deserve to also have like political rights of their own with which to stand in its way, whether that's through voting or otherwise so and they're already organizing towards those ends right like there's no shortage of like young people doing you know there's a bunch of young people who are planning on interrupting the white house correspondence dinner whether or Mm -hmm. not these things are blowing up pipelines though shout out to the recently released movie how to blow up a pipeline (laughs) um which is also about gen z organizing you know they're they're doing whatever they can come up with and there's all sorts of stuff that you know, they're doing that we're not reporting on, which is probably for the best because they probably deserve their privacy to figure out fine tuning mm-hmm. it and not to get intensely harassed online for trying to save their own lives, which is a pretty basic, you know, part of left politics, whether mm-hmm. or not mm. people are connecting all these dots or because I don't even, I don't think the left is particularly engaged in treating young people no. as no people with political agency whatsoever. I mean, people infantilize team vote constantly. I went, I mean, Anyway, that's like a little, you know, me being my job pilled. I just, but regardless, yeah, the kids are mad. They're doing stuff. And the whole infantilizing thing is incredibly tired. It is. It's exhausting. Yeah, it
2: is. But, but this is so, it's so helpful to, to slow down and point this out, right? Like, I'm just thinking of how many actual substantial political interventions actually rely on this kind of cover story of dismissing young people as the primary group impacted. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. in mm-hmm. my in my passing hobby of monitoring um, the lib podcast industrial context, uh, industrial <laughs> complex, I have, you know, been sort of following How people are trying to narrate the proposed legislation in Congress that would, among other things, allow the U.S. government to regulate or ban or force TikTok to be sold to an American company, and is just like this cover, you know, itself for like Patriot Act 2.0, you know, Internet Electric Boogaloo or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And and the way that that gets construed, right? Like I see these talking points come up where it's like. Is it bad to do this? Because, you know, the youth, they like the TikTok. They will not vote for the Democrats. <laughs> and it's like, okay, that is literally, like, the most inane, <laughs> like, explanation of what's at stake here. And also yeah. so dismissive of young people. <laughs> and, like, as 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 an adult who does not have TikTok, because I my I am just too old for it, whatever that really means. Um, you know, I'm like, wow, <laughs> this is like not helpful for someone like me who isn't even on this app and doesn't have firsthand experience. Like this is terrible reporting. Mm-hmm. But I was also thinking about because I mean Lexi, I really appreciate your coverage of this Biden admin proposed Title IX policy that you know was another instance where like I don't know who does messaging for this administration but the rollout was so messy because it really clearly caught like it caught a bunch of trans people who are like very online (laughs) and like have like arm's length relationships to the administration kind of caught them with their proverbial pants down in a way because at first they were like this proposal is horrible the language of betrayal was being thrown about and then like two days Later, I don't know who gave them new marching orders, but they were like, no, a- actually, I overreacted. Maybe it's okay. And I was like, oh my god. Um, but this, but this, you know. So I really appreciated your your piece from a couple of or from last week. But one of the things that you know kind of stood out to me. So of course, it's this classic Joe Biden trademark compromise genre right Where it's like Mm -hmm. you have all of these bills one of which was just like denied the west virginia bill just denied by the supreme court right Uh, and so it's like these bills that like clearly aren't amazingly, robustly constitutional. Obviously, the judiciary is a joke, but still, like, they're not great bills, right? And it's this thing mm-hmm. where like the Biden admin will be like, so you've created in a lab the worst legislation possible. I know how to politically outmaneuver <laughs> you. I'll meet you in the middle. Ha <laughs> ha Right? And so this,
3: <laughs> this policy,
2: right, is like Obviously, discriminating against trans people in sport violates Title IX. That just seems so blatantly obvious because the Supreme Court also in Bostock v. Clayton has already established that discriminating against trans people is just sex discrimination. Apologies to all the turfs and gender criticals for whom this would make their heads explode, but yeah, you can discriminate against trans people on the basis of sex too. There is no magical distinction under law between sex and gender. But so this policy, right... On the one hand, right, it's very classic carrot stick. It's like, hey, you can't discriminate against trans people um, as a class and you can't create laws that are just designed to harm trans people by excluding them from sport. But, but you could ban trans some trans students if it was, quote, based on a set of sex-related criteria unique to their community. Which, like, Mm -hmm. what the actual fuck, American, like, kool like...
0: bullshit.
2: <laughs> what community? Oh, as we all know, this is, like, this, like, this is, like, the most absurd American thing that, like, I come from, you know, I'm originally from Canada. It's a country that's, like, very heterogeneous. But the way Americans do this hilarious, like, use federalism as an alibi for just, like, naked minority rule and discrimination is always so funny. So like, I feel like the fantasy here is, like, well, as we all know... Sex in Idaho is not like sex in New York City, and we couldn't possibly have one law for sex everywhere in the country, right? It's just like, what are you even talking about? So there's like, no need to make these distinctions. They have no reference to anything. And it's completely Mm -hmm. self-contradictory. But like one of the things that I really appreciated, you know, is the way that you were you covering this piece too, is that there's this talking point that goes around and I understand where it came from tactically, but it's really bad, right? It's like, oh, you know, there are like almost no trans athletes at all in these yeah. states. So, so isn't it hilarious that the state legislator is specifically targeting like two teenagers with a law? First of all, no, that's not hilarious. That's that should disgusting. be fucking cause for it's disgusting. It's disgusting. Like, but also, yeah. wait a minute. Why do you think there aren't more young trans people participating in an organized sport? Come on. The fact that there aren't very many of them is not like good news for how absurd these laws are. It's what these laws are trying to entrench and codify and ratify a status quo that was already the case because discrimination isn't just practice because the law says you can do it. And then I'm always like, Actually, this is the rub when it comes to anti-trans legislation, because in fact, there aren't that many trans people. So like these laws, right, in their implementation, in their policing, right, in the way that they're actually used in the world are are also often here to target non-trans populations. Because guess what? Mm-hmm. A lot of other people's genders don't count according to the state or according to... You know, um, racist, particularly racist ideas about, you know, bodily propriety. And so all of these anti trans bills about sports will be used, absolutely guarantee it, 1000% will be used in the majority of cases to target black girls participating in sport, to question their genders, to subject them to excruciating and uh, disgusting, you know, kinds of evaluative, you know, and medical procedures, just the way that we see this happening, you know, at the elite sport level around the world, where it's black women's athletic excellence that has always been questioned and subject to gender testing and just this very long and brutal history of misogynoir. And it's like, all of that gets deleted, right? When this like conversation gets turned into like policy wonk land, right? Um, but also mm-hmm. gets turned into like how Joe Biden as very much an adult and not a child, uh, you know, is in conversation <clears throat> with, you know, all these Republican legislators, also adults, not children, as if, like, no one is actually being impacted by these bills because we're being told, well, there aren't that many trans kids playing anyways. But also, like, we wouldn't even begin to talk about all the non-trans girls, particularly the Black girls, who will be targeted by these bills. And so it's just this way, again, that the entire population of young people directly targeted by aggressive legislation are disappeared from the public narrative. And so it's like no one has even asked... Do we think young trans people care about these bills? Are any of them organizing about? What do they do? What are they, how are they navigating these questions? Right? How are they dealing with them? How are they imagining solidarity? You know with. Like black girl athletes or other, you know, like it's just like all of these things get disappeared as if there's no one actually being impacted by the bills, as if this is all just a bunch of rhetoric or politics that has no real world outcome. And I think that that's key to understanding how the sort of liberal, Mm -hmm. you know, opposition to anti-trans authoritarianism actually like, entrenches its basic premise, which is that trans youth aren't really people worthy of serious consideration. And so we're completely cut off from all of the ways that they, you know, might be responding to or ready to outwit this nonsense.
1: I think that's right. such a good point, Jules. And I think that, like, you know, the the point of the Biden administration basically coming out and saying, like, you can't do a one size fits all Categorical ban on transgender Students in sports but you know You would be permitted to draft Up your own complex taxonomy Of exactly who yeah. and how you Want to include oh you fucker Perverts who love to You know nosy in people's lives Collect details and make assumptions About what kind of people people Are based on those details Why don't you go ahead and make your own Systems for you know codifying And formalizing and reproducing These fucking biases you you have, what you're trying to inscribe in policy here. And so, you know, he's basically like, go for it, guys. Fucking go for yeah. it. Make it harder <laughs> for us. Make it harder. And, and I think part of the reason why the Biden administration would find it a priority to do that, and they fucking put out like a whole thing saying, oh, we've been working on this since inauguration
0: we've been working like on this it's so cringe like, so
2: reassuring
0: yeah good work you i the, the the thought in the back of my mind this whole conversation like we like this whole line of thinking has been like <laughs> they wonder why they get clowned so much and it's because they're so unserious do you mm-hmm. know what i mean like mm. they just are not like what are you doing like everything is just like for real? Well, I think oh, what they're man. doing is
1: they're like, you know what? Our society is under threat. Things are falling apart. Right. Democracy yes. is eroding. TikTok is making the teens depressed. Yeah. Masks are causing long COVID. Like, whatever fucking bullshit is going through their head. And they're thinking the ordinary citizen feels under threat by trans people. And that's an opportunity to bring the ordinary citizens together. And the Democratic Party only cares about that median white you know lady voter who's off you know as that ordinary citizen somewhere and so they're like ordinary citizens are are you know scared and we need to validate that you know we can't right. we can't support people you know under attack here without validating the people who have like transferred the attacks on trans life into like a opportunity for them to fundamentally wrestle with and weigh in on something that is none of their fucking business which seems to be like Every sort of uh, quote unquote ordinary citizen feels that it is their purview and right to kind of weigh in on whether or not they think trans people should be allowed to exist and under what circumstances and who counts, you know, like that kind Mm. of deferential authority combined with the kind of frame of both, you know, toxic kind of this kind of toxic, perfect infantilism, where you're both saying that like children are our future and need to be protected and are these like, you know, perfect vessels. And also, you know, they have no real legitimacy. Their actions are not, you know, the same as adult political actions. This kind of erasure we've been talking about that, that in and of itself, I think is part of also taking. Uh, the idea of like the political values of young people and also kind of saying that those are things that are also outside of and threatening the ordinary citizen and that the Biden Mm. administration needs to react to the fact that like left political values and the values of young people which are completely different with their mm-hmm. priorities and values that those are a threat to the american way of life and that they need to like reflect that and acknowledge that in their actions because that's more important than you know the fucking shit that you like they're being called out for which is what's destroying like the very earth that they're standing I, it's it's infuriating but i do think that they see there being this need to, like, validate that ordinary citizen that they think is so afraid and has so many questions about trans people. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I might even go even further there, right, and say that I think this is... You know, it's reminding me of some bedrock, uh, really useful points from from the field of critical childhood studies that I've had the privilege to work in, you know, in my, uh-huh. in my day job as a professor, where, you know, the infantilization of young people and indeed their political disenfranchisement under the law, but also economically, actually has a lot of purposes. And one of them is to rationalize and prop up the infantilization of entire populations and reiterate a kind of logic of political superintendence where someone's role is to lord over and govern others, which is kind of Mm -hmm. the quintessential settler form of politics, right? And so historically, treating groups of people like children Right has been really effective as an alibi for some of the worst forms of particularly racial domination in the United States. It's the very logic right. by which settler colonialism stole, dispossessed uh, indigenous lands and, and political structures, broke treaties, produced you know the whole legal infrastructure that actually exists now at this point. Where you know mm-hmm. in the late nineteenth century the Supreme Court you know, declares that indigenous people are not citizens, even though they reside in the territory where the constitution supposedly, you know, prevails because they are internal dependent nations. They are like the children of the United States and therefore the United States is able to uh, possess and govern them like children. It was also the primary, one of the primary alibis of the regime of chattel slavery that treated enslaved black people as, uh, inferior as types of children, right? It has been used to, uh, you know, deprive so many different kinds of uh, of disabled people, you know, from any basic exercise of legal uh, or literal autonomy and self determination. Um, mm-hmm. But but that superintendence point too is the flip side: is that you know someone gets to enjoy the immense power and privilege of being in charge, of being the superintendent, Mm -hmm. of being the principal of everybody else. And it has so often been in the kind of sentimental political culture of the United States, white women who are given this kind of charge, who are precisely idealized as sort of quasi-mothers, right, for delinquent Mm -hmm. or racialized or criminalized populations. And so this is actually why I think it's so important for, you know, for this political consensus, right? For trans youth to be disqualified or for young people in general to be disqualified as irrelevant because that median fantasy voter, that white woman, right? This is how we get into this bizarre situation where the random white lady in the suburbs she is the main character of America, right? And it's her mm-hmm. job to and decide. And Jessie Single
1: is her voice.
2: And her, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Like, she's the one in charge of trans kids' lives. Trans people's lives are apparently her responsibility. But but we have to walk it back and understand how we got into that situation, right? And nothing would antagonize that more, that, like, presumption that it's her you know, up to her to decide what we're going to do. She's the one who's going to create these local sex, you know, local sex criteria. I think under this Title IX, right, we're imagining her being like, well, in my experience as a white woman who thinks, you know, who, who who has unmediated access to children's genitals, you know, I actually think this and not that, right? But but nothing would interrupt that more than trans people, but especially young trans people, right? Interrupting that cycle, interrupting that logic of super superintendents and saying we're not here to be ruled we reject being governed we have our own thoughts and interests and desires and we also can flex our own ability right not just to self-rule but to organize to to form collectivities and I think that that is really this dynamic that we're zeroing in on here that actually is genuinely a threat to a political order and so as like liberalism Mm -hmm. you know has to provide a kind of counter-revolutionary, I'm using that in scare quotes, sort of pressure or try and apply a certain brake pedal, right, to the crises that authoritarianism or fascism is taking advantage of, it's always going to try and consolidate back to the most absurd Um, kind of ground possible, the most sort of classically kind of almost 19th century, you know, version of the citizen and of the state possible, the kind of liberalism really where, you know, a a kind of eugenic project and an explicitly white supremacist project for the United States as as an empire and as a settler colony sort of laid Mm -hmm. out the rudiments of so many structures that we're still dealing with to this day. So I think this is not incidental. I think this is like, yeah, so all, yeah. important. And that's why, like, yeah. the arrival the, the loud denunciation of this bullshit by young people through their political speech through their political action is really important. It's not just because they're being disenfranchised. I think it's because young people have a really unique purview to throw a wrench in this hegemonic system.
0: So I wanted to get back to that because I have story that will be published by the time this interview is live uh, coming on Title IX. And to your point, Jules, about like the kind of back and forth messaging that a lot of people were doing about it. This was something from earlier in the conversation. Um, There's a whole group of trans legislators that had a letter like put publicly to the Biden administration on Monday. And I spoke to a few of them about, so that's the story that's coming later today, at least, about like how they put the letter together, what they were thinking about, and then what bills like this have been doing to their own experiences as like trans legislators mm. and you know members of their own community and so like you know the Biden administration releases this stuff and like pats itself on the back and is like yeah like <laughs> out of one side of our mouth we're 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 standing we're with you trans people and we've been um, working on this, it for months <laughs> for months, months. thank you you're welcome etc <laughs> yeah meanwhile you know like if you listen To these legislators, there's like, I, they're like, I don't even know anyone in my constituency that actively wants these things. All of the constituents who talk to me about these issues are, and largely their kids and their parents are telling me why they don't want them. They're the ones showing up to school board meetings besides like these after turf groups. And when the Biden administration weighs in on it, it's to, to Jules's earlier point, it's based on like a completely falsified narrative like it's like two different versions of the same story Mm. that are going on there's one Mm -hmm. as trans people are experiencing it Uh. which if you treat them as the main characters in the situation which should be abundantly obvious Mm -hmm. then that's the story but not everybody is doing that which is fine but like i'm not gonna not you know (laughs) like i guess we'll just keep doing our doing our separate things and i'll just have to keep reminding everyone what they're not doing so like it's fine
2: (laughs) Well just to say about about the title nine, one last thing, like you know, that I really appreciated about, you know, I'm excited to read this new piece, but about the the piece from last week that you wrote, Lexi is that, you know, towards the end, you have this really great nugget where you sh- where you walk this walk, right about about how to shift from two versions of the same falsified story to a version that implicates the people or implicate like, or to a version of the story that asks what people are really up to. And so, you know, because this this article is about, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's criticism of the Biden admin. And then I love this. This is how you end the piece. Quote, a recent profile of Ocasio-Cortez in Politico highlighted her recent efforts to coalition build After her first years in Congress, when the media obsessed over her interactions with former House Speaker (laughs) Nancy Pelosi and others. The profile also noted her relationship with younger progressives in the House, like Representative Maxwell Frost from Florida. And I just love that because you just you just, it's like, it's beautiful. I mean, it's kind of one of those, like, I'm just going to show you the thing instead of, I'm going to show you instead of telling you what to, you know, what it means to do this yeah. differently, where you're like, this is the media, right? Was obsessed with AOC because she could play this kind of foil to Nancy Pelosi and they conscripted her for that purpose, regardless of whatever AOC was actually up to. And I just think that that's such a great example of what it means to both identify how, the framing of an issue has absented a kind of different story that we could be telling and then to shift towards it, that there is coalition building going on. There are other ways of doing politics than setting up a narrative of two ostensible antagonists who actually, you know, for the purposes of that media narrative, are just there to, you know, almost like play fight uh, in order to not think about anything ever changing, to maintain a status quo and actually shifting, right, and starting to ask a question. And so I, I kind of just loved that um, about, this, about this piece of yours.
0: I don't know if it sounds like too obvious. Hmm, maybe I'll do the thing we were just talking about of showing and not... Telling. Um, so, like, I recently had, you know, when on Trans Day of Visibility, we had a story, or we had a series of stories published as a joint project between one, like, basically our sister outlet at Teen Vogue, which is them, yeah. which is also part of Found and Asked, um, and so I as the... um, I I am, as far as I know, the only trans person that works at Team Vogue, but the team at them is majority trans, which is, like, very rare to say for another media organization. Um, We work together over a series of weeks coming up with, you know, like sort of like service journalism for the stuff that we would have needed like four years ago so like you know when i was in college i before i was ever trans like you said this earlier jules like your politics precede like your own like i i do you know what i mean like same like before i knew i was trans like i was organizing at my undergrad for a gender-inclusive bathroom and my big takeaway was that it didn't happen until like (laughs) seven years after i left or whatever okay maybe less than that like for but like they rely on that turnover like yeah. schools rely on ton- turnover mm-hmm. to lose yes organ like organizing mm-hmm. knowledge like that's how it's easier to keep them the way they are which if you're a young person and you've ever tried to change something that impacted your life at school like which bathroom you get to use which is how these groups of organizers get together is like it's generally just because one of their friends and believe it or not this predated the transgender tipping point right. or the trump administration or whatever arbitrary timeline that people think <laughs> is when trans people came into existence as a concept for young people which you know jules i know your, Hell yeah. your entire yeah <laughs> book project is is the basis of that being you know makes the point that that's bullshit um like oh, i got away from myself point being we were talking about things that would have been useful for us mm-hmm. to have and so that was a really enjoyable project in that sense and i think it makes it possible for my work to feel like it exists in the space of the ambivalence you were talking about up top mm. if, if if such a thing is possible right because you know i i do feel like i get to report on or write about things that are signs i feel like every interview i do with a trans person just ends up with both of us being like hey everything is horrible what is a good thing you want to highlight mm. and every time i ask that question i get a different interesting answer and I just do them the service of actually reporting it as opposed to all of the conversations Uh. that happen with trans people off the record that never end up in a New York Times story Mm. after an editorial process that Mm -hmm. completely purges them from it and so if like we already know that the part of the queer project is like searching for ourselves in the archives right and finding Mm. ourselves there like it also has to be about finding ourselves there here now and with an eye to our own safety right because of all we know about you know per like termaline and others the trapdoor of visibility whatever um like then you know like it matters to me to be able to write a guide about like stuff that i feel like a trans high schooler in my life Mm -hmm. who asks me for advice on this would want to know before they email their teacher the day before the first day of classes Mm -hmm. being like hey my pronouns on the roster aren't the same which is Mm -hmm. a thing someone has asked me about in the last six months you know what i mean just asking your teachers Mm. to gender you appropriately is a conversation that for most students if they feel safe like it's a luxury for them to be able to do that and it's still homework like which they already have homework (laughs) do you know what i mean like so um like it was really great and i wrote like a guide about like what you should know about coming out at school especially giving like what's been going on in texas um with the deputizing of teachers Mm -hmm. as like an extension of like the social service police state basically yeah um and i spoke to for that piece i spoke to advocates for youths dr jamie campbell Mm -hmm. who is also a trans person um which i only say because a lot of journalists will not clarify whether or not their primary sources are all cis or not Mm -hmm. or like we'll do that or we'll only source cis people and be totally fine with that Uh or only (laughs) run stories by cis people and be totally fine with that and i like maybe i sound silly just articulating this all out loud but i don't know if cis people realize that like i don't think and if you're a journalist right now i don't think they do and it's good it's because it's
2: being left out yeah
0: right it's like the same kind of like you know in 2020, people acted like they had no idea that white supremacy was a problem in newsrooms. And although it was absolutely like incredulous to watch all of these people say this who had like gotten so many levels of degrees and yet could not say race matters. Um and so like obviously like they didn't look good when they finally had to acknowledge it, but at least they had to acknowledge it. You know what I right. mean? Whereas with trans politics, we are uh experiencing a very extreme like dragging their heels through the mud refuse it's like pulling teeth trying to get somebody to acknowledge that not hiring trans journalists is going to screw with how trans people are represented in public life a thing that like we are trying to make clear across issues of identity because it's like to your point it's about solidarity it's about all this being a shared struggle but if you can't even articulate that then like how are you qualified to be reporting on all of this in the first place but regardless when i talked to dr campbell they made clear to me that there was a winter twenty twenty. There was a winter 2022 case in Massachusetts where mm-hmm. four parents, and then it was two parents because two dropped out, had sued their school district over um their quote unquote parental rights, which was like the whole parental rights movement. Like it's what comes up when you Google Moms for Liberty is that their quote unquote parental rights organization <laughs> as a whole like ideological cudgel going on. Um, but using that as the basis for having their children talked to about pronouns by their teacher Mm -hmm. um, and like about gender presentation. Um, And in that case, the federal judge dismissed the parents case, which is not to say, like they were very clear to say, like, it's not that that means the federal judge loves trans kids, but it does mean that there are like, this is not cut and dry. This is contested ground and you have to report on it that way, because if you don't, it makes people feel, you know, as, Defeated as they, as, you know, transphobes want us to feel. And, Mm. you know, the broader political conservative project wants people to feel, right?
2: No, I'm so glad you brought that up, Lexi, because to me, that's the other side of this conversation, right? We've been talking about how much children's political organizing activity and imaginations are disqualified or rendered informal and thus kind of subtracted from public conversation. But we can't just romanticize, right? That like that children or young people, you know, simply because they have to live outside of those sort of symbolic boundaries that everything is fine and they'll just figure it out. Actually, we have to attend to as adults, right? The ways that young Mm -hmm. people are in fact impacted by and disenfranchised by that um, disappearing act that our culture performs around everything they, they know and want and need. Because some of it is about what, they are not allowed to know and what has been withheld from them. And so there is this other question, I think that that comes in that you just so beautifully articulated, which is like, well, what do we as adults, right? (laughs) Particularly as queer and trans adults, but just like as adults that have, you know, years of experience dealing with things, went through similar things. I mean, we have often this, this refrain of like, well, what did I need at that age? Right. And how can I sort of try and break a cycle by thinking about how to, furnish or provide or build solidarity with young people, right? And I just, I think, I think that's challenging, right? We might say that one, just one, of the many things that the libel of calling uh, queer and trans people adults groomers or pedophiles, one of the things mm-hmm. that that's about is through the sort of most scorched earth, spectacular version possible, right? Eliminating any possibility of cross-generational solidarity and transmission of knowledge. And that's really important for the project of homophobia and transphobia because queer and trans people do not literally reproduce ourselves in a linear fashion, right? You don't have to Mm -hmm. be like born of a queer trans person to be queer and trans. We just appear, we just arise gloriously, right? Distributed throughout the general social body and population. And so, you know, Finding ways to build solidarity and productive, non-exploitative relationships across the generations is something that, you know, is really powerful for combating forms of disenfranchisement and dispossession, but therefore also the subject of one trillion moral panics because it challenges a kind of heteronormative order of descent, which is also, you know, a way that power is reproduced generation to generation, right? So it occurs to me, right, I just can't resist the chance to dunk on parents' rights. I mean, because parents' yes, rights please. to me, <laughs> there's actually a good reason to run the, the sentence out, the grammar out the same way as states' rights in that famous line. States' mm-hmm. rights to do what, right that's the famous line around the kind of white supremacist revisionism around the civil war yes it was a war about the states rights to uh you know forcibly enslave an entire population based on race right so it's not just this kind of right as a sort of affirmative in a vacuum right it's a it's a form of freedom to dominate another population parental rights is actually a formulation that comes out of you know, a legal a legal doctrine that emerges in the aftermath of the Civil War, you know, because mm-hmm. part of what happened in the U.S. constitutional order, sorry to be such a nerd for a second, but like, I love you it. know, the abolition of slavery introduced a number of legal problems into the U.S. system, right? One of which was that, you know, the notion of freedom as articulated in the Constitution was directly materially and conceptually dependent upon Right. The the forcible dehumanization of entire population into property, right, into a thing. And so after the Civil War, one of the questions on the minds of everyone after the white supremacist backlash and destruction of the project of reconstruction is, well, now how how are the freedoms of property owning white people going to be secured against whom? Right. Uh, Based on whose dispossession? And of course, one of the answers will continue to be the dispossession of you know of, of freed black men and of African Americans more broadly, which is why we start to see the creation of a modern police and incarceration state. Um, it's also mm-hmm. through indigenous dispossession and the expansion of settler colonialism. But actually, one of the other arenas is the invention of the child as a strange legal category, mm-hmm. and the child as a kind of form of quasi-property. So you know when we talk about parents' rights, which come out of this constitutional tradition, it's parents' rights to dominate their children to treat their yeah. children as quasi property right so so parent rights are are very explicit about this it's my right to do whatever i want to my child and the state cannot interfere in my enjoyment of my domination over my child, right? So there's a very clear articulation of a relationship across generations, a relationship of domination and of reproduction, forcing young people to reproduce whatever is projected onto them by their parents or legal guardians. And so I think what's so important about asking how we, as adults, who object to that violent, subjectifying project, um, but who also want to to think about how to be in solidarity with young people, it's genuinely hard because that's the model yeah. we have. It's at best a civic pedagogical model that says children are innocent, unknowing, and helpless. And so we have to guide them in their best interests, which they don't know, right? That's the, the sort of most annoying version of it. But then genuinely learning how to operate differently is challenging in part because there are all these structures where young people are having to deal with situations at school or at home or, you know, in their day 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 -day life. And it's like, yeah, how do I show up for and support them? How do we provide, you know, useful, critical, well-researched information in an accessible format, right? Like, how Mm -hmm. do we deal with this in an era of don't say gay laws, right? How do we talk about, well, children's constitutional rights at school are incredibly narrow, but there are some, right? And and I love that you, you said, Lexa, like, like, this is, contested, right? So, so let's Mm. get in and contest. And what's a relationship of solidarity that amplifies sort of what young people are up to defending their own interests, but also how can we ally with them and provide more support for them than, than maybe we had when we were in the similar position, right? I mean, I think these are really important questions. And I, and I, I think that that's like, I think that's like the nitty gritty of it for me, because, you know, I, I can't, even recall now how many years have been out there being like, we don't listen to trans kids. We don't even know how to hear a single thing they say. Like adults are terrible, right? Um, But by the same token, I've never meant to say like, Our job is just to like leave kids alone or something or be like, okay, go handle (laughs) your own shit, right? Like just just take care of yourself, right? Um, We're not trying to adultify young people. We're trying to learn like a mode of solidarity across a social difference and across a threshold of autonomy and across a threshold of uh, formal agency, right? And we're trying to think about how a relationship of solidarity can increase the agency and empowerment of a disenfranchised population, right? And I think that that's a really... Powerful kind of way to think about approaching the question of doing politics in this moment differently, when we're yeah. otherwise totally burnt out and depressed by the the complementary antagonism of liberalism and fascism. Well, what if we? What if one way we were to do that? Right. What if one way to cut a path through the kind of absolute scorched earth of electoralism, you know, legal um, court challenges of liberal politics as such. Is, is to actually think about building a form of political solidarity that is not actually prescribed by this ridiculous little republic called the United States, which is adults and young people in a relationship of political solidarity. I think that would be, you know, one one way to imagine a path forward that is neither a return to a deadly status quo nor uh, a kind of handshake or capitulation to the worst tendencies of this moment. And it just strikes me that you know the kinds of questions that that series that you're working on raises are exactly those questions and i think all of the most like the 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 forms of work going on around the country especially locally that give me the most um, i don't know that just fire me up the most in this moment are ones where adults are not like taking charge of trans Mm -hmm. youth and like trying to quote unquote protect them as in like control them. But the ones where, where adults are just taking the time to be in community with young people and just give them things, right? Like the smallest version of that that I've gotten to do is just like occasionally I've had the chance to, you know, spend time sharing and teaching from the history of trans youth to trans youth and their families. And the way that I do that is just like here's a bunch of stuff for you. Like, I want to give these stories to you. I want to give these primary sources to you. I just want to give you, you know, access to a history that you're not only not being taught in school, but that's actually very hard to get access to otherwise because it's also academically gatekept. But like, I don't presume to know what it is you need to do with that, right? I just want to sort of be there and also then reciprocally have the chance to listen and absorb and hear from young people in different locations, what resonates with them, what matters to them. And that helps me, right. Think more thoughtfully about my, um, responsibility, right. And my possibility of solidarity with, trans young people in this moment since I don't have a bunch of them like in my own personal life so I just think there are really interesting opportunities in this moment as terrible as everything is right I just think we keep naming these really kind of exciting possibilities to not just to like learn to proceed otherwise but to just like jump dive right into the fact mm. that we're already mm-hmm. ready mm-hmm. to to move differently
0: yeah hell yeah I know I keep saying this but I I think the thing that I think, I think I write a lot about um, anger. Like, I think I don't actually write a lot about like political malaise. I don't think I write a lot about people feeling um, numbed or stuck. I think most of my writing tries to focus on the political utility of anger. A thing that like, Mm -hmm. I think we all know is denied to the populations we're talking about. Like, across the board and how much those things are based around race and gender and ability and whatever else. Um, but if, if not anger, then I think optimism and like an optimism that is, uh, is still aware of all of the bad you know what I mean? Like, I think the thing I feel optimistic about the most is just how many people we have right now who are asking these questions all at the same time and are interested in like pointing back to one another and creating like a track record and a web of all of our overlapping struggles and movements and how we can keep them in tandem. And I think that that is, there's a way in which like, I'm really grateful that I I I knew about police and prison abolition and also about media propaganda around, and propaganda before this whole, before the transgender tipping point. You know what I mean? Like, I'm happy to have been able to learn from other movements who are still experiencing the same level of state crush and like the boot, you know? Um, but like the the great thing is that we all get to talk to each other now. Yeah. <laughs> and like the, yeah. the the times where we're not, being distracted by all of well not distracted but like actively removed from our own self-development because that's fundamentally what all of this is is their attempts to like legislate and restrict self-growth and like growing into yourself and knowing yourself and like not in like a weird conservative like Uh, individualist way but in like a someone who is responsible for another person like people who are in community with each other a person who is a political actor because we are all inseparable like this and all of these things are attempts to divide us and make that harder to see and take that out of the conversation and so it's really interesting to have been you know writing about Title IX from a rape culture perspective for many, 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 many years and organizing around that before Mm. it, you know, came across someone's brain. To your point, Jules, that like, actually, therefore, Title IX does also talk about trans rights. And it is like being willfully obtuse to not talk about it that way. Um, And so like, I obviously, you know, I think a thing that I keep thinking about is, not to downgrade or belittle any of the real serious harm that is happening and that people I know like every trans person I know is experiencing right now whether or not at the New York Times they live in New York like I (laughs) as a trans person in New York like feel unsafe often and so do the other trans people and like that's because of how we talk about safety and that's like another like policing big question that we don't even need to get into but like point being like given the stakes like i'd rather spend all my time figuring out what people are doing differently and they're doing a lot of it and the more committed we can be to seeing each other's axes of oppression clearly and not getting caught up in all of this like media uh respectability bullshit is like the only (laughs) way that like you know, like if I take writing for young people seriously, that means I owe them something. You know what I mean? Like I owe it to them to say what's actually happening and like be real with them about the things they can and can't do. And like what it even means to be not safe in the state's conception of that, but safe in a way that like is like care. It's about treating journalism as an act of care. And like, if you're, if you're actually like, really about it, if you're about protecting kids, which is what all of these conservatives say they're doing, (laughs) then, like, you would actually think about it this way. Because I don't know if the New York Times is thinking about, like, what a 16-year-old who's Googling, you know, trans, like, what to do if you're a trans kid with an unsupportive parent, and then comes across an article like that. Like, are they not thinking about, like, what that person's experience is like reading that article? Because if you're not doing that, then, like, who are you showing up for? You know what I mean? Who's, what, whose rights are being protected by that being the way your coverage approaches it. And so it feels really for, for everything that's going on, my role feels really clear. And I'm more curious about what other people's intentions are in the situation because they're like, I'm the one here that is not like me exclusively, but like people who are doing this work are the ones that are like actually asking kids what they need, thinking about, the impact that reporting will have on them and being cognizant of the fact that the media itself is an apparatus that can be applied by the state for it to meet its own ends. And to not acknowledge that as a piece of this broader puzzle or or whatever is to not give your job the serious it deserves and like not in a, Oh, I wear suits and interview fancy politicians (laughs) way and like uh, people's lives are impacted by the way we talk about this stuff
1: yeah no it's not happening in a bubble this all has a material consequence and context and it's so much more important it's not like it's it goes back to the like very first thing that we talked about which is just that we're sort of working in this moment where part of the game is to drum up this biological destiny and create mm-hmm. you know this kind of vibe that becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy and that's just fucking PR but that's how we treat a lot of politics and we also like to pretend that we can't do shit until we know what the right answer is and that's also bullshit yep. and it takes mm-hmm. so much knowledge production and social reproductive work that has to push the boundaries of what even social reproduction is. When we even think about this as like a Marxist concept, it's primarily located also within the structure of the family, right? Like this is why it's it's so important to be sort of making these connections, iterating things, having these conversations, really talking through... All of the kind of context, the the broader points, but the point of any of this fucking shit is and what it means for these bills to exist, like, is not about whether they pass or not. It's not about how many people they affect. This is... How the state makes itself like the state is not just like a thing and has to construct itself Mm -hmm. through its actions. And these Mm -hmm. are the ways that we can use political economy to see that, you know, these institutions of the state which construct the state. They're not neutral. Right. They're embedded with values and priorities. And you can pretend all you want. that There's some sort of like neutrality available just out of frame laughing with their friends (laughs) like whatever the fuck. But like that's a losing game, and I'm not interested in like continuing to fucking play around like in that way. And so I, I really appreciate. It. This has just been such a fun, wonderful conversation, which is ironic to say because it's such a yeah. fucking aggravating. Yeah, but <laughs> if we didn't have fun, yeah, then exactly. Yeah, exactly. But the, the, there,
2: there is an important takeaway in that, right? That that things might be dire, but we're not dire. Right. There's nothing no dire thing. about the people in our lives and the, the relationships and solidarities that we all enjoy and are going to grow and make stronger through all of this. You know, sure, because we have to, but that doesn't mean that we don't get more out of it than we put in. And and I think that that will always be the thing that makes me feel buoyed and reassured and excited and, and maybe hopeful i don't know i never say i'm hopeful on death putting that under a ratio but you never know never say never
0: i know it's a both and highest of highs lowest of lows and i'll also say that the queer and trans young people in my life are some of the silliest geese i know and they are not like in any way unable to access their own joy just because (laughs) or you know what I see it as my job to protect that joy right Mm -hmm. and like other people should too and that literally sometimes just means like not like being a mouthpiece for fascism and then other (laughs) times that means like you know like letting them have like protecting their space to be silly and go on TikTok at US government to your earlier point Jules I have another piece coming on that at some point too oh Jesus (laughs) I think
1: that's the perfect place to leave it for today, honestly. And Lexi, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really nice.
0: It's been so fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you so
1: much. And uh, listeners, if you want to follow Lexi on Twitter, you can follow them at Lexi McMenamin. And patrons, thank you so much, as always, for supporting the show. We are entirely listener funded and couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show, become a patron and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism, or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore patrons. We will catch you Monday in the patron feed. For everyone else, we will see you next week. As always... Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. I get so
3: tall on being.